In his book, uh, Improving Your Serve, Chuck Swindoll sets up the following scenario. He says, let's pretend that you work for me. In fact, you're my executive assistant in a company that's growing rapidly. I'm the owner, and I'm interested in expanding overseas. To pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family in the move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you in charge of the busy stateside organization. I tell you that I'll write you regularly and give you direction and instructions. I leave, and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office. I'm stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist room, and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, and listening to her favorite disco station. This was written, by the way, in the 1970s. I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. Uh, The carpet hasn't been vacuumed for weeks, and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction, and I bump into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. What in the world is going on, man? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. Got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we've had letter study every Friday night since you left. We've even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay, you got my letters, you studied them, meditated on them, discussed and even memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do? Uh, and the story ends there. This morning, we're back in the book of James, and specifically in James chapter 1. And it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this great book, and so with that, I think it'd be helpful if we had a little refresher on where we've been, so that we can better understand the context of where James is taking us, not only today, but in the weeks and the months ahead. Remember, if we look at James chapter 1 as a whole, we see that where James is directing us, where James is pointing us, where James ultimately wants us to get, is to this place of Christian maturity, This place where, as he describes it in chapter 1, verse 4, we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And as it's going to become more progressively clear to us as we continue to work our way through the book of James, the maturity that James is pointing us toward is developed through two means. Uh, The first means by which we grow and mature, as we saw in the first several sermons in this series, is through the trials that come from without and the temptations that arise from within. We are to consider it all joy when we encounter those various trials, James 1-2. We are to consider it all joy knowing, as James 1-3 says, that the testing of our faith produces endurance, steadfastness, hupomene, which ultimately, verse 4 says, brings us to that place of Christian maturity where we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
We are to consider it all joy, James says in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, when we ask God for wisdom to navigate our trials. We're to consider it all joy, James 1, 9 through 12 says, when we recognize that God uniquely brings certain forms of trials to the rich of this world versus the poor of this world. And we're to consider it all joy as we recognize that while God allows us to go through various trials, trials are not the same as temptations. And God himself does not tempt anyone, James 1.13, but instead is the supplier, James 1.17, of every good and perfect gift. So that's the first means by which we grow and mature through trials, even temptations. And then last time, two weeks ago, we opened the door to the second means by which we grow and by which we mature, which is through the word. Having been brought forth, having been begotten, having been birthed through the word of truth, as James 1.18 puts it, we are to be quick to hear the word. We are to be slow to speak when we receive the word, and we're to be slow to anger in response to the word. And then James 1.21 says, we are to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and in humility receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now that catches us up. We grow in maturity by receiving the word patiently, by receiving the word submissively, by receiving the word humbly, and by receiving the word in purity. And now the page turns, and now the focus shifts, and now the thought process changes as James now here in our text today will redirect us from stressing the manner in which we are to receive the word to being people who faithfully do the word. We're going to pick it up this morning in James chapter 1, verse 22. If you're not there already, please turn with me in your Bibles to James 1, verse 22. We're going to go through verse 25 this morning. God's word reads, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. For you note takers here this morning, I've outlined our text as follows. Point one, verse 22, would be the point. Verses 22 and 23 would be the picture, and verse 25 would be the promise. The point, the picture, the promise. That's how we're going to frame this up for this morning. Let's start with verse 22. He says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, over the centuries, there have been many who have said that this is the theme verse of the book of James. And that it so succinctly and crisply pulls together what James is saying throughout this entire book. I can't say I disagree. This verse does, verse 22 does, encapsulate much of what James has previously covered. About trials, about seeking wisdom, about temptations, about being hearers of the word. And this verse does also accurately summarize everything he still will say to these early Jewish Christians about their tongues, about their passions, about their plans, about their prayers, about their perspectives, and about everything else. In all of it, James is saying, be doers of the word. 
The Christian life is not one of sideline sitting passivity. Rather, it is one of devoted and consecrated activity. It's not passive belief. It's active faith. Now, James here starts in verse 22 with this all-important word, but. That word always has significance and great significance because with it, James, what he's doing here is continuing on with his overall train of thought. He is saying it is important that you hear the word. And in doing so, it is important that you hear the word with open ears and closed mouths and submissive spirits and pure and humble hearts. But that's not enough. It's not enough merely to hear. The Christian not only hears, the Christian does. Which is what we see him picking up in these next two words of verse 22. But prove yourselves. Prove yourselves. That word, geneste, is a present middle imperative. And all that means is that James here is saying, be continually. Show yourselves more and more to be. Keep on striving to be. And keep on striving to be what? Well, he tells us in verse 22, the referent is to being doers of the word. So putting it all together, James here is saying, be continually being doers of the word. Show yourselves more and more to be doers of the word. Keep on striving to be doers of the word. Don't proudly point to your dog-eared Bible. Don't drop in the casual references to how you earned a degree in theology with honors. Don't puff out your chest in pride over how much of the Bible you've ingested or memorized or even preached. No, James here is saying that the true believer, the faithful believer, the maturing believer will not be satisfied with merely knowing the word. They will not be enamored with their own expert grasp on the scriptures. Rather, in response to the word, they'll submit themselves to the Holy Spirit's work of convicting them of the sin that still clings. And they will turn again with the Spirit's power from that sin and progressively put off that sin as they grow in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. So prove yourselves. Prove yourselves what? Doers of the word. Doers of the word. Now that word doer in this context could also be translated those who do the word. And what this is speaking to is this person who is wholly and comprehensively devoted, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, comprehensively to whatever it is they've been tasked with, to whatever it is that they've been charged to do. He's all in. She's all in. It's the picture of the professional soldier whose life is completely devoted to combat and warfare in contrast to the guy who plays paintball from time to time. It's the picture of the bodybuilder whose life is dedicated to shaping and sculpting and refining himself physically rather than that guy, that old guy who shows up from time to time with the headband as he tries to regain his old form from the glory days. It's the picture of that professional home builder or or skilled repairman who has, has whittled his craft or his trade down to a science in contrast to the guy who is merely capable of changing a light bulb in his home from time to time. A doer, in other words, is all in. He's fully absorbed. He's totally committed. And that idea, by the way, is not unique to James. Remember, James, his half-brother, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
And as we've already seen, as we will continue to see as we study this book, is that oftentimes James will channel in certain sayings of his half-brother, of Jesus. Recall the words of our Lord in some of these verses that I'm going to read off for you right now, and how they parallel what James is saying here about being doers of the word. These are the words of Christ. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, or does them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Or Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Or Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. John thirteen seventeen. If you know these things, you are blessed to do them. James here, though, is not only pulling in the wisdom of Christ, he's also pulling in wisdom from the Old Testament. Remember, James was writing to this early audience, these early believers who had this Jewish background, this Jewish heritage. So they would have been surely familiar with these passages. Deuteronomy 28, 58. The Israelites there are charged to be careful, to observe all the words of this law which are written in this book. Or Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. What James is saying here then, as he ties together these words, both from Christ and from the Old Testament, is that genuine faith acts. Genuine faith acts. The doer regularly and routinely puts the word into practice in his life. To be a doer of the word, in fact, is more than being something someone does. It is what someone is. They're dedicated not only to hearing and learning God's word, they're dedicated to faithfully and continually obeying it. Since the Bible tells them to render to Caesar what is Caesar, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to pray for those who are in in government leadership, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to gather as God's people, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to share the gospel with non-believers, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to love their brothers and sisters in the Lord, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to train up their children in the ways of the Lord, they do so. Since the Bible tells them to work heartily as unto the Lord, they do so. See, we are not merely to be students of the word. We are to act on the word. Which takes us to the next part of verse 22, where James contrasts those who are doers of the word with those who merely hear the word. It says, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Mere hearers. Now, there is no question that salvation starts with hearing. Faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of Christ. And there's no question that we are called to be hearers. That was the entire last sermon I was up here preaching. Remember, we we saw in that message from James 1, 19 through 21, that the church is to be made up of people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger in response to what? God's word. That's James 1, 19. So as we strive to grow in maturity as followers of Christ, it certainly does start with hearing the word of God. After all, we cannot do what we do not know. But what James is getting after here in verse 22 is that the Christian's obligations do not end with hearing. Hearing, in other words, is not enough. 
Now, the word here for hearers, in its original context, would refer to someone who who would sit passively in an audience and listen to a speaker of some sorts. And this person wasn't taking notes. They weren't replying audibly. They weren't raising their hands and asking questions of the speaker. They were just taking it all in. A modern-day example of that would be the person who audits a college course, maybe even a course at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Lincoln, Nebraska. They attend. They hear. They listen. But they don't do any of the work that four-credit students are doing. They're not doing outside studies. They're not reading extra books. They're not writing papers. They're not taking exams. In other words, they're not being held academically accountable for what they hear. Now, there is a legitimate place for auditing in academia. Someone can legitimately audit a course just to learn something new for which they don't need to write papers and take exams and so on. However, there is no legitimate place for auditing in the Christian life. That's exactly what James is saying here when he warns his audience about being mere hearers, mere auditors. Rhetorical question time. Don't answer. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to see the hands. How many of you here this morning are just auditing true biblical Christianity? You're willing to wake up reasonably early on a Sunday morning. You're willing to take a shower and brush your teeth and style your hair and put on some nicer clothes before you come here. Uh, You're willing to brave the elements, the icy winds, to get here. Uh, You're willing to shake a few hands and give a few glancing nods out in the south lobby as you walk in. You're willing to grab a bulletin. You're willing to sing a few songs, or at least mouth the lyrics. You're willing to throw a few dollars in the bag during offering time. You're willing to sit in your comfortable chair, and for many of you, the same comfortable chair that you've been in for many years. You're willing to sit in this climate-controlled auditorium. You're willing to listen quietly and attentively while the preacher is up here. You're willing to close your eyes for the closing prayer. You're willing to be part of the program. You're willing to go with the flow. You're willing, like the Athenian philosophers of Acts chapter 17, to come and hear something new, like you would a university lecture or a presentation at an art museum. But then, with a self-righteous sense of satisfaction, I did church today. At least I'm not like the godless pagans out there who don't go to church. You head right out these doors at 11.30 a.m. on the dot, and it's back to the anger, and it's back to the bitterness, And it's back to the envy. And it's back to the hostility. And it's back to the hopelessness. And it's back to the despair. And it's back to the fear. And it's back to the mindless scrolling. And it's back to the time-wasting. And it's back to the daydreaming. And it's back to the booze. And it's back to the drugs. And it's back to the porn. And it's back to the unequally yoked relationship. And it's back to sleeping with your girlfriend. And it's back to lusting after someone else's wife. And it's back to the idolatrous obsession with worldly things. And it's back to whatever dangerous cesspool of sin you find yourself walking toward. Listen now. If you're living a buttoned-up, spit-shined, polished-and-pretty Christian life only here on Sunday mornings, but you're not living an upright and godly life out there between Sunday mornings, 
If you're an auditor only, a mere hearer, James has a word for you. It's at the end of verse 22. Look at what he says about the one who is a mere hearer. Look at what he does. Look at what he's doing. They delude themselves. Delude. Paralogizomai. It means to miscalculate. It means to incorrectly reckon or or reason. And in the context, what the word actually suggests is deliberate false reasoning for the purpose of deceiving. It's the same word Paul uses in Colossians 2, 4, where in his context, he's warning the Colossian Christians about false teachers who were teaching Christological errors. He says to them in Colossians 2, 4, I say this so that no one will delude you, paralogizomai, with persuasive argument. Here in the context of James, what he is saying is that professing Christians who hear the word without obeying it make a serious spiritual miscalculation which causes them to be deluded. Not only that, though, James here is using with that word, that verb, he's using the the middle voice. And what that means is the actor is bringing the activity upon himself, meaning the mere hearer is not just deluded, they are self-deluded. They are self-deceived. Any response to the word other than faithful, unqualified obedience, James is saying, is self-deceptive. But we deceive ourselves if we say we've heard the word and listened to the word, but we do not follow it, but, but we do not do it. Now, bringing it back to James one twenty two, there are those who, because of their constant hearing of the word, they're just going to assume they're saved. They're just going to assume they're safe in Christ, that they are among the redeemed, that they are one of the faithful. And they're going to assume that because they've heard the word. They're going to assume that because in some settings they continue to hear the word. And in churches like ours, they have the opportunity to hear the word constantly. That does describe our church, does it not? I'm being fair, right? This is a church where we have countless opportunities to hear the word, right? First hour. Second hour. Evening service, Bible study, Titus Tuesday, Wednesday night study, adventure club, men's conference, women's conference. We're planning a marriage conference for next year. The Sound Words podcast, pamphlets, books, the bookstore, book studies, sermon archives. What riches! We are truly blessed. But what James is telling us here is that as much as we can and should avail ourselves of all of those resources, hearing is not enough. We aren't faithful just because we hear. We aren't being faithful just because we listen. Listening is merely the start of it, but it's not the end of it. No, our conduct, our works, our doing, what we do, that's what shows whether we have genuine faith. It's not a question of claiming. It's a question of living. It's not a matter of hearing. It's a matter of doing. Again, consider what we see elsewhere in the the New Testament on this very topic. Again, James is not out here on an island inventing some new out there theology. It's all over the New Testament. Consider these words 
I'm going to rattle off a few more verses, some from the very lips of our Lord himself. Matthew 7, 16, you will know them by their fruits. Matthew 12, 34, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew 12, 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 14, 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. A hearer who is not a doer is deceived. He is deceived into thinking either that he is being faithful in his walk with the Lord when he actually is not, or worse yet, he's deceived into believing he knows the Lord, that he's saved in the first place. 1 John 3.10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. One of my greatest fears in this role as the pastor of this church is actually not to step up and preach texts like this just because they make us a little uncomfortable. My job is to preach the word in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2. What I fear, rather, is what texts like these may expose in our church. As the light of the truth of God's word penetrates the dark corners of the hearts in this room. How many of you know much about the word but are doing little in response to the word? How many of you are hearing the word but not doing the word? How many of you are deceiving others and deluding yourselves? How many of you have open ears but hard hearts? How many of you are active at church but otherwise at home you've spiritually atrophied? How many of you are just going through the motions as religious do-gooders, as spiritual busybodies, when in reality your hearts are far from the Lord Jesus Christ? My heart genuinely breaks when I think of it. Please, if I'm describing you, I ask you, I beg you, stop playing games. Stop the charade. And for some of you, Stop that listless and limping death that awaits you in a real and eternal hell. If you're an audit-only attender, if you're a mere hearer, my call on you on the authority of God's word and specifically what we have here in James 1 is to repent. To be willing to acknowledge before God that you are a mere hearer and not a faithful doer. And maybe you're that mere hearer who is a genuine believer, but right now you're in that season where you just find yourself somewhat spiritually adrift. You know, the spiritual cylinders aren't firing. God seems somewhat remote or far off from you. You've lost your first love for him. If that describes you, the solution is simple. Ask God through prayer. Ask God, beg of him that he would fan into flame the lost affections you once had for him so that you'll have the motivation and the resolve to be a faithful doer of his word and not a mere hearer. 
But I fear that the reason some of you in this room are mere hearers is that you have never actually been born again. You've never truly come to trust in Jesus Christ in saving faith. And if that's you this morning, it is not my place to call on you as an unbeliever to start mechanically doing the word because the reality is you can't. You're unable to. You can't do so without a new heart. You can't do so if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do so if your sins have not yet been washed and forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. You can only do so if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, trusting in his finished work on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Every one of them. Every wicked, vile sin you've ever committed. Those that that are out there in the open and those that are hidden in those dark corners of the heart. If that's you, let me make a promise to you right now. If you cry out, to Jesus today to forgive your sin, to save your soul, he will answer that. He will wipe out, blot out the sin debt that you've incurred. You will be granted eternal life. His spirit will indwell you, and you will now have the ability to fight those sins that you've never been able to fight, to have victory over those sins you can never seem to have victory over, and to live the faithful and fulfilling life that only a true follower of Christ can experience. So if that's you, if you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, if you are not truly a believer, you don't need to do like what James is saying here. You need to run. You need to run to the cross of Jesus Christ to beg him for forgiveness and ask him to save your soul. Back to our text, verse 22 There's no pleading ignorance as to what James is saying here. We know exactly what he's saying and what he means. From the pulpit to the pew, we are called to do what we hear. Christianity, again, is not a faith of just hearing. It's a faith that involves doing. Obedience to God's word is not an elective in the school of saving faith. We are not to be mere auditors of the word. We're to be practitioners of the word. We're to be doers of the word. You're saying, okay, we get the point, Jesse. We're all saying, okay, we get the point, James. We can go home now, right? Wrong. (laughs) Ever the preacher, James now drives this point home even further with this illustration in the next two verses, verses 23 and 24, which brings us to our second major heading for this morning, the picture. We had the point in verse 22. We now have the picture in verses 23 and 24. Let's read it. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Again, James here is just so crystal clear in his writing. There's no questioning it. There's no contending with it. There's no challenging it. He's made his point, be doers of the word, not mere hearers. But then through this use of this vivid illustration in verses 23 and 24, he drives the nail all the way in, starting with those words in verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. In other words, if a person is not heeding what James said back in verse 22, if they don't have active faith, if they aren't a doer of the word, if they are a mere hearer of the word, if they are a pew potato, 
And then he gets right into his illustration. He is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, in some ways, this illustration is simple enough that it's immediately understandable to each one of us, sitting all these years later all the way across the world. We can picture what James is outlining here, this picture of the person walking up to the mirror, giving themselves a passing glance, and then walking away and forgetting some aspect of their physical appearance. But there are other ways in which this illustration actually isn't all that relatable to us, given the original context. And what do I mean? Well, think of it this way. The idea of forgetting what we look like is pretty much impossible in our day, right? In a way that wasn't true of James's day. Unlike James's original audience, you and I have that experience of knowing what we look like and knowing quite well what we look like from head to toe, from young to old, for better or for worse. We know intimately the details, the lines, the blemishes, the you name it, of our own face in a way that the people of the ancient world didn't have. We have the use of the photographic image. We have the iPhone. We have the Android. We have videos. And of course, we have the normal experience, the common everyday experience of looking in the mirror, looking in the bathroom mirror, looking in the countertop mirror, looking in the rearview mirror, looking in the mirror at the gym, looking in the mirror at the storefront windows every time we walk by one, looking in the mirror of every car that we walk by. Don't act like it's just me. (laughs) Right? In fact, we love ourselves so much that we fill our homes with mirrors. I would venture to say that most of us have more mirrors in our home than we have people who live there. Think about it. And we're so preoccupied by how we look that whenever we pass some sort of reflective surface, we can't help but stop and get a glance. That wasn't the case in the first century. The average person in James's time would have only had the fewest and rarest opportunities to ever glance in what was a mirror back then. And even then, the mirrors that they had would just give these crude outlines of what the person actually looked like. That's the picture James is giving us here. If a person is a mere hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, like he says here, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, and for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James here is saying that the mere hearer is like a man that looks at his natural face. And that verb there for look, kataneo, is actually stronger than what our English verb for look would suggest. The Greek verb here is more like behold, to look carefully, to observe carefully. James here is not talking about the passing glance as you pass a Toyota in the parking lot. He's describing a person who is peering intently and giving careful and cautious consideration to what's in front of him. And what's in front of him? His natural face, it says. That alone is a very interesting set of words, his natural face. Translated literally, it means the face of his birth, the face of his genesis, the face of his existence. Some uh, translations render it the face that he was born with. The words natural face are perfectly legitimate here. But the main idea is he sees himself as he really is. 
the man here is pictured as looking in the mirror and seeing his face and even studying his face in one of those mirrors that were not high definition, not high resolution. They were these mirrors that were not made of the mirrored glass that we're used to, but they were rather these primitive, polished bronze, silver or gold, depending on how much wealth the person had, that really gave a dusty, hazy, opaque reflection of what you were looking at. But if you looked long enough, and if you studied intently enough, you could get a pretty close sense of what you actually looked like in those early mirrors. But it took some work. It took work to see the man or the woman in the mirror. And it took work, intellectual firepower, to retain the image of what you saw until the next time. It could be many decades later that you had a chance to look at a mirror again. I set all that up and lay all that out because what James says here now in verse 24, it explains why what he says, why it's so jarring. Look at verse 24 again. It says, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Hang on. What? We've just had this description of the person looking in this mirror in this once in a blue moon type opportunity they get the chance to see what they look like and what the mirror reveals about what they look like and then look at what happens he he looks at himself in the mirror and just as soon as he's given this rare this momentous opportunity he takes a few steps away from the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like this would be like going to game seven of the world series and walking out of the stadium, and before you get to your car even, forgetting the sounds and the smells of the stadium. This would be like holding your newborn for the first time, and before you hand them off to the doctor or nurse to clean them up, you've already forgotten of how their warm skin felt against yours. This would be like the groom seeing his bride walking down the aisle for the first time, but he takes one sheepish glance down at his feet, and he already forgets her beauty. That's what's going on here in verse 24. The man described here in James's illustration peers intently into the mirror to see his own face, his natural face, and after he's looked at himself in that mirror and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Now that word here for forget or forgotten, that doesn't refer to some you know, innocent failure to remember something, like forgetting all the state capitals or forgetting if Haggai goes before or after Zephaniah, or forgetting the names of certain grandchildren. No. To forget here, the definition is to allow something to escape by inattention or neglect. Again, this is an analogy here in verse 23 and 24. James here, through analogy, is driving home this deeper spiritual point with the picture he's painting. And that point, again, is this. Just as it would be ludicrous for a man who, after intently looking at a mirror, immediately forgets what he looks like, especially in the early context of James's book here, it is ludicrous for a follower of Christ to receive the word, to hear the word, to sit under the word, to study the word, but not to do the word. A person who looks at God's word and hears God's word even if carefully and attentively, but then does not do God's word, that is, does not apply God's word to his or her own life, he deludes himself. 
deludes himself. God's word is the mirror of James 1.23. It identifies us. It reveals us. It exposes us. Just as a physical mirror reveals or exposes our very real blemishes, the mirror of scripture reveals and exposes our very real sin and our very real need to repent of that sin, to confess that sin to God, and that very real need to purify ourselves from our sinful ways. And just as it would be absurd for this man in the mirror of James 1, 23 and 24 to look into that mirror and to study his physical appearance and to walk away and immediately forget what he looks like, so too would it be absurd, and not just absurd, but potentially spiritually deadly, to treat God's word in such a careless manner. As you look on, into the mirror of God's word, as you have God speaking directly to you through its pages, but then to ignore his commands and his directions and his instructions as you go on your merry way. I get it. I understand. In our fallen state, we do have a tendency to forget rather than to remember. And that's why many of you will forget this sermon by, by dinner time tonight. James here is saying, fight against that. Fight against that tendency. Don't let the word go in one ear and out the other. Don't be attentive in your hearing and then forgetful in your application. Don't drift. Don't ignore what the mirror reveals. Instead, face up to what the mirror of God's word is showing and act accordingly. Be a doer of God's word. All right, we've seen... The point in verse 22, we've seen the picture in verses 23 and 24. We now get to the promise in verse 25. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So we've received the charge from James here to be doers of the word and not mere hearers of the word. We've walked through this illustration of how being a mere hearer is like one who studies his appearance in the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looks like. And now we have this major turning point in this section of James where we go from the the negative example to the positive example, where we go from the forgetful one to the faithful one, starting with those words again in verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. We had the hearer pictured in verses 23 and 24. We now have the doer described in verse 25. This person, this one, you see, looks intently. Now that word, looks intently, is actually a different Greek verb than what we saw back in verses 23 and 24. The verb here is parakupto. It's a stronger, more intensified verb that refers to to looking. It it actually means to literally stoop down over, to bend down, to examine something with precision. It's the same verb that Luke would use to describe Peter looking into the empty tomb after Jesus' resurrection. The same verb John would use to describe that same event in John chapter 20. Now, in the context of James's mirror illustration here, that word, paracupto, implies this willingness to stoop to humble oneself, as a person would crouch down or crane their neck with great effort and great desire so that they can look intently into whatever it is they're looking at, in this case, a mirror, to discern what that mirror will reveal. And this person, verse 25, 
when they see what that mirror reveals, as they stoop over and look into, peer into what it reveals, they are gripped. Unlike the first man of verses 23 and 24 who forgets what kind of person he was, there's no chance that the person in verse 25 is going to forget what he sees. And look what he sees. The perfect law. The law of liberty. What is the perfect law? Is it the Mosaic law? No. The Mosaic law was for Israel. The Mosaic law, Galatians 3.24, was the schoolmaster that would point to Messiah, Christ, when he came. Certainly there are things and principles we can glean and learn from the law, but we don't live under the authority of the law today. Rather, James here, when he's mentioning the perfect law, he's referring to the word of God, the scriptures. We have to remember in context, what he's referring to here is part of this broader paragraph. And this whole paragraph, as we've seen here in James 1, is about being submissive and humble recipients of the word of God and now faithful and active doers of the word of God. We've already seen in James 1.18 that he brought us forth by the word of truth, the gospel message which is found in the word of God. We've already seen that we are, James 1.21, in humility to receive the word implanted. So as James here continues to build out his thoughts about the work of the word in the believer, it is most logical to conclude that the perfect law he's referring to is a reference to the word of God. And the way he's using this word law here. It's to describe how God's word is is authoritative in the life of the believer, meaning it's that body of truth which serves as the foundation for the Christian faith. It's that authoritative standard by which life in the body is to be regulated. It's our standard of faith and standard of practice. All that to say, though we don't live under the Mosaic law, God's law, specifically God's word, is the law For the Christian today. So we study it. We seek to learn it. We revere it. We honor it. We follow it. We obey it. We order our lives around it, even if others might call us Bible thumping fundamentalists. The the Word is the law for us. And seeing that it comes from a perfect and truthful God who cannot lie, who cannot deceive, God's word truly is, as it says here in James, the perfect law. It is sufficient. It is complete. It is final. It is comprehensive. It is declarative. It is without error. It is without contradiction. It is flawless. It is absolutely perfect. And it always accomplishes all that God wills and all that God purposes. Not only that, though, James calls God's word not just the perfect law, but in this parenthetical, he says, the law of liberty. Those words of liberty, that's a subjective genitive. And what that means, all that means is that this perfect law is what gives that Christian the experience of genuine freedom. It's a law, the perfect law, which gives us liberty as we seek to heed and follow and obey it. The truth of God's word, and specifically the truth of the gospel contained in God's word, sets us free. It liberates us. When we were brought forth by that word of truth, as James 1.18 puts it, the shackles of sin fell off. We were free of the enslavement to our old ways. We were, we became liberated. But that doesn't mean that because we've been set free, we don't yet have an obligation to obey. 
We do. Though we have been set free from the bondage of sin, and though we have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ, we still have a master. As Romans 6, 17, and 18 puts it, we were once slaves to sin, now we are slaves to righteousness. All we've done, friends, is traded masters. We've been freed, but we've actually been freed to be slaves, bondservants, douloi of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is it that our master, our gentle, our gracious, our ever-loving master wants us to do? Where is it that he wants us to go? What does it mean to obey him? What is he, how does he want us to follow him? How do we know what he wants us to do in following him? Through his word, the perfect law, the law of liberty. The doer, the one who is not merely, merely a hearer, the one who is growing in Christian maturity is the one who looks intently, James 1.25, at the perfect law, the law of liberty. That is God's word. But not only that, look what comes next. And abides by it, it says. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. That is, he gives not only his full attention to God's word, he follows through as a doer of God's word. He not only reads the scripture, he lives out the responsibilities that scripture places upon him. He heeds its imperatives. He follows its commands. He lives in light of its examples. And he does so precisely because he's been freed through the precious blood of Christ. As one commentator has put it, men are free when they want to do what they ought to do. That's, what's, that's what the law of liberty is. The person pictured here in James 1.25 is no mere hearer, but a faithful doer. The very type of maturing Christian believer that James is not only urging his original audience, but each one of us here today to become. And to such faithful doers, he holds out this promise at the end of verse 25. This man, it says, this woman will be blessed in what he does. It's not limited to men. It is a term that applies to men and women. The man or woman who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, will be blessed in what they do. See, the blessing comes not in the hearing. The blessing comes in the doing. The doing of God's word. He will be blessed in what he does. Now note that this is written in the future tense. It says, he will, this man will be blessed. Meaning this is a statement of assurance. Such a person is blessed in knowing that they are heirs of the hope of eternal life. And that that salvation, that that eternal inheritance cannot be snatched away from them. But also such a person can live in this life blessed and fulfilled knowing that they are like the wise man of Matthew 7, 24 and 25 who builds his house upon the rock. They are blessed in knowing that they can live in this happy condition that comes along with living in joyful obedience to God's will and God's ways as he's revealed them in his word. Knowing that they are not mere hearers but faithful doers of the word. Well, as we close here this morning, I want you to note that there are certain similarities between the mere hearer and the faithful doer of the word. 
so much so that it can be difficult at times to distinguish the two, especially when we're talking about ourselves. Both receive the word. Both hear the word. Both listen to the word. Both are present and attentive and alert and aware, just like anybody in this room this morning, when they hear or receive the word. The difference, though, is that one resolves to obey the word, to do the word, and the other does not. The one puts the word to practice in his or her life, and the other does not. The one is spared the insecurity of spiritual delusion, and the other is not. The one has true, genuine assurance of salvation. The other does not. And to use the words of verse 25 here, the one is blessed. The other is not. As we head out of here this morning, I want you to reflect on a question. Am I a doer of God's word? I want you to think on that. Are you a doer of God's word? Or are you a mere hearer? If you're the latter, I want you to think, what does that say about me in light of what I've heard this morning? In light of what the text of Scripture in James 1, through 25 says about me this morning? I want to make very clear, I'm not asking you to go home and think about how this sermon makes you feel. I'm not asking you to think about what your answer, even to that question, how that makes you feel. I want you to reflect on what your answer is and what it says about you in light of what God's timeless, perfect, revealed word says about all of us. I ask that you would go home and really wrestle with that and reflect and think and chew and process and measure all aspects of your life against what we have here in the timeless, precious word of God. And humble yourself. If there are parts of your life where you are certain, I am not doing the word in this area of life or that area of life. Confess that sin to God. Seek forgiveness for that sin from God. Repent of that sin. And and resolve to live a more faithful and godly life in Christ Jesus. And if what that reveals is that, like I said earlier, you have never been born again, then I would love to chat with you out there in the South Lobby today. We, can, we could grab a place in the corner over there to, to talk privately and pray. And then you do business with God and really make sure that you know him, that you really have bent the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Because again, you can't do what James is saying here. You need to do if you haven't had a true conversion experience. So make sure before you leave here today that you are right with the Lord, the living God, Make sure that you've trusted in Christ for salvation. And only then can you truly say, number one, are you redeemed and saved and have the hope of eternal life? But only then can what this message is conveying land on the right soil and lead you to a place where you can actively do what Christians are called to do. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning for the chance to be again in the book of James. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth it contains, the clarity with which it is communicated, and its perfection. Thank you that we have in this book all that we need pertaining to life and godliness as believers. Thank you that we have in this book the hope of the gospel, the gospel message itself written out so that unbelievers can read it 
and, and wrestle with it and come to faith in the one Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. I do ask, as I just said, that, that we would take this text, a familiar text, and not let it float away or, or, or dissipate in the ether after this sermon, but rather that we would chew on it and work through it and, and, and study ourselves in light of the word and repent of any ungodliness that remains. Repent of any passivity that remains. Repent of any deception that remains. Help us to be not mere hearers of your word, but faithful doers, and may you be greatly glorified. In Christ's name, amen.